Okay, so this is a competition to see who can come up with the fact that gets the wildest reaction out of Steph. Yes. Excellent. Let's go. Welcome to Behind the Yellow Boxes, your one-stop comics history podcast. I'm Steph, your co-host and friendly neighborhood archivist. And I'm Brooke, your not-so-friendly, self-declared comics expert. We're two comic nerds with a lot of opinions, and we think it's important to know your history if we want to understand why comics are the way they are. And this marks our 50th episode of the podcast. God. (laughs) It's, uh, (laughs) it's true. As of this episode, our podcast has reached the milestone of 50 entire episodes. And, of course, to celebrate, we're doing a topic that, at the very least, Brooke has been on pins and needles for us to get to since we first began talking about starting the podcast itself. The heroes in a half shell themselves. As uh, tradition says, turtles counted off. One, (laughs) two, three, four. Teenage Teenage Mutant Mutant Ninja Ninja Turtles. Turtles. Uh, yeah, so it's a big deal, and we've got uh, some great guests to talk about all things Turtle with us in a moment, uh, but we did want to say some words about this podcast uh, before we get into that. Uh, yeah, me too, because even outside uh, talking about my beloved franchise, uh, this is a really huge deal. Honestly, uh, we started this podcast together uh, back in COVID. <laughs> Back in, back in COVID times. Back in COVID, you say. Back, uh, I had been furloughed from my job. And yeah, we were, I was, I started bothering Brooke, poke, kind of poking her, saying, hey, do you want to do this thing? And the correct answer, for the record, should have been, Def, you're already making me do another project with you. Why do you want to do this one as well? And there was no good answer. Uh, fortunately, I don't ask a lot of questions. I just say yes. Absolutely worth it, though. We've had a lot of fun. We've met some great people through it. And uh, Brooke has finally been able to get me to read a lot of comics that she has been wanting me to read for a very long time. Up to and, inclu- up to and including Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, number one. <laughs> True. But yeah, uh, I'm very grateful. Uh, I've had a great time doing this podcast uh, with you, Steph. And I've had a great time seeing people's reactions to our various episodes and uh, just sort of spreading some of the knowledge and love uh, that we have for this very complicated, very nuanced, uh, very silly medium that uh, we both love and appreciate so much. All that aside, uh, we have two wonderful guests here with us today to truly live in the turtle spirit. Our good friends and previous collaborators, Iz and Nina. Could you both introduce yourselves and give us a summary of your turtledom experience? You know, you go first. Okay. Uh, I'm Nina. I believe I'm, if not the most recently come to Ninja Turtles, because I think that it's still Steph, and at least the most recently involved. Um, I got into Turtles, funny enough, through Transformers, because <laughs> I was in a server with the movie trailer came out for the Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. And the server I was in, which really likes the Quintessons, went, oh shit. Aliens and Tentacles, what else is in here? And we ended up watching the entire 2018 series over the course of July in time to watch the movie when it came out in August. And 
I got way more into it than I was expecting and started looking into the IDW comics and the 2003 cartoon. Uh, Nina was, I believe, our first guest on this show, guesting in our Asterix episode, which I believe was as possibly as early as episode five or so. I believe you are correct. Hello, uh, I am Is I guest starred on the Zine episode, and I have been a fan of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as long as I can remember. Uh, my earliest memory is watching the live-action movie, uh, Masterpiece Underrated, for which at summer camp we had a dress-up, and the girls were supposed to be uh, poodle dancers, and the uh, boys were going to be Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and they were going to put on a show for the parents. And I defected to the boy side because I wanted to be a turtle, so I famously dressed as Michelangelo and got to order a pizza on stage. So uh, I committed to the bit, and I haven't looked back since. I'm mostly familiar with the 2003 TV series, the live-action movies, and then the IDW comics. I've watched a bit of the 2012 series, but given that every Turtle series is for a different generation, it wasn't quite for me, but I did enjoy parts of it. But for the most part, I'm IDW comics and 2003 classic animated Turtles. And I would I would absolutely order pizza again on stage dressed as Mikey. That has not changed. Thank you both. I wanted to sort of share uh, my experience. It's been an ongoing joke on the podcast that I am constantly trying to get a Ninja Turtle episode in to force my particular interest on Steph. Uh, which we literally talked about this during the Zine episode, how you were going to force Steph to, to do a Turtle episode. Yes, the bit has not changed. My experience with the Ninja Turtles is kind of also my experience of how I got into comic books. Uh, I've talked on the podcast before, uh, both my dad and my uncle, uh, hi dad and Jody, they uh, both were big comic fans growing up. And uh, when I was a kid, I had access to their comics. Well, it just so happened that my uncle was the one who uh, had the weird indie stuff. And one of the things that he always liked was Ninja Turtles. And Ninja Turtles was already pretty popular due to the 87 series and the live action 91 movie uh, that Iz had just mentioned. And I got into all of those, of course, but I really uh, got into, uh, alongside my Spider-Man comics, I really got into Archie's uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Adventures, which was kind of the comic book spinoff of the classic 87 cartoon. It's been a huge part of my life for basically as long as I could remember. And it's a huge reason I even became a comic book fan. Yeah, I have, compared to the rest of them, a, rel a very weak re Ninja Turtles resume. I did not grow up with them. I didn't do Saturday morning cartoons very much as a child. Didn't watch the movies. Didn't read the comics. Uh, my initial exposure to the Ninja Turtles, besides as a parody Christmas song... That that was sung sometimes at my elementary school was I would guess in 2015 or so when Iz and Brooke gained up on me and uh, had me watch some of the 2003 series. I think we got most of the way through season one uh, the first time around. I watched it. I enjoyed it. But my resume is a lot thinner 
than these ones. Ergo, I will be playing moderator and sometimes, wait, no, you have to actually explain that thing you just said. Most of this episode is going to be the four of us talking all things turtles, but before we get too far into the thick of things, let's introduce some of the basics of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. After all, as ubiquitous as the brand tends to be these days, that that doesn't mean everyone actually knows what we're talking about, kind of like what uh, Steph was alluding to. I guess I'm just going to open the floor with a few questions. Is, Nina, what are Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? My head is empty, filled with nothing but theme song right now. Well, (laughs) if the title doesn't tell you enough, I don't know what to tell you. Kind of what it says on the tin. Uh, I, I, I think, honestly, um, What is so interesting about TMNT is that, yes, the title tells you everything you need to know. It is about teenagers who are mutant, that are also ninjas, and all of this uh, through the lens of being a turtle. But I think what's really interesting about the series is that I honestly don't think any one word in the title does not have an impact on, like, the actual series. Like, every story has some element of the title in it. Mutants ninjas. And by the way, they're turtles and they're going to talk about being turtles at least 17 times. What's interesting about the title is not just the fact the title does tell you everything you need to know, but it also tells you nothing about what you're no. in. <laughs> you're like, okay, so they're teenage, they're mutants, they're ninjas, they're turtles. Okay, I think I understand this. You're like, so clearly their parent must be another turtle, because that would make sense. No, you're, they're, their parent's a rat. Cool. Um, <laughs> I guess, sure. Um, and so he was always a rat, right? Well, depends on your continuity. You know what? Let's just not look at it. Okay, so their dad's a rat. So who's their main enemy? So it must be other mutant ninjas. Mm, not exactly. It's a whole giant ninja league read by a guy named Shredder. Um, and you're like, okay, that, that makes a little sense. But also Shredder in some continuities, is it some or all, is an alien. Notice the crane. Some. Some. Sometimes. Also, he's sometimes a samurai instead of a ninja. It depends on your continuity. And they go, what? And you're like, and sometimes reincarnations involved. And also the multiverse. Also, uh, be prepared. It doesn't matter what continuity it is. There will be aliens and time travel in equal measure. The best way I think you could describe Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from being serious is one, yes, the title tells you everything you need to know. But two, I think it is one of the most loving depictions of comic book storylines. It looks at all of the different comic book storylines like turn evil and time travel and aliens and all sorts of stuff and it goes do these genres fit together who's to say and just puts it in a blender and you know what you don't think it'll work out but yet somehow it tastes delicious while we're still on the subject of the title it's such a the threshold of disbelief is like okay you must accept every part of this and now that you have accepted every part of this anything is fair game brooke and i talk a lot on this show and generally about how when you get into the realm of superhero parody which there is no doubt that teenage mutant ninja turtles is at least half a parody at all times you kind of get into two camps camp number one is the people who are parodying the thing that they love they are engaging with this and maybe even critiquing it from a place of love and affection. And then there's people who hate it and hate comics and think the answer to what if superheroes in the real world is fascism and all of the, and other, and similar things. And you, 
and those ta- those parodies or satires or takedowns kind of like and some people to be clear like both kinds or like the more dark gritty quote-unquote realistic kind more more than ones that are in love with the genre and in love with and are fond of it uh but turtles is pretty firmly in the we like this genre we are going to make fun of it we are going to talk about how ridiculous it is but we like it here and i think it kind of shows through turtle sees the hot camp of comics and people going comic storylines are so stupid and it goes yeah that's why we go here we're segueing pretty quickly into genre so i want to just point out that we have still not explained the concept (laughs) so if if i may offer my summary Uh, that I have used before on people. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is a series about a literal family. The family is both, uh, is both by blood and by choice. And this family is going to be constantly put in the peril of the most comic book of comic book stories. And what separates them and what gets them through all of the different trials and tribulations of a very wacky and often very violent and uh, dangerous world is the fact that they have each other and they also have uh, usually uh, a righteousness attached to them. They aren't superheroes in the traditional sense most of the time. Again, uh, Ninja Turtles has more variety than just about anything else you can examine, but they do have a, a code, a code that they not only live by, but that that sort of guides the principle of their world. You know, it's not simply that uh, this is the best that we can do. It's the best that we want to do because we live in this world and we want to see it be better, whether it be through defeating the ninja of the week, the monster of the week, the alien of the week, the actual supervillain of the week, or, you know, sometimes you have to help your uh, hockey-obsessed buddy uh, still back uh, the golden puck, and that will be your entire story for a day. So it's about family. It's family. Wait, I thought we were talking about the Ninja Turtles, not about Fast and Furious franchise. It can be both. It can be both. That would be (laughs) such a good crossover. It would work so so shockingly good so the series there are always four turtles sometimes there are more there are always at least four turtles Uh, at least uh, not always sometimes there's only one let me specify in most at the beginning of the series with one or two exceptions there are four turtles who are the focus character i think that's a fair statement Mm -hmm. there is leonardo he is the one with the blue there is sometimes Raphael. We're going to go we with can't. usually. I said usually. Usually. Usually if Leonardo has to a debate, blue mask. We'll get nowhere. <laughs> Except for the original original series. Leonardo has a blue mask. Raphael has a red mask. Donatello has a purple mask. And Michelangelo has a orange mask. Their personalities do differ from series to series, but there are a couple of hanger-ons. Usually, keyword. <laughs> Leonardo has a sword. And in keyword here most, and I think Nina will talk about this later, He's usually the leader. And recently that has changed in some versions. Raphael is usually seen as more of the brawler kind of persona. Donatello is usually the tech guy. And Michelangelo is usually the fun, very happy-go-lucky sort of dude. And I want to say vast simplifications. If you are are watching a cartoon, is usually something that they explain in the intro song. They tell you. 
this is what this guy does. There is more depth to all of them, depending on your medium, or there is no depth at all to them, depending on your medium. But those general four characteristics tend to carry throughout. Usually they have a father figure. Sometimes he is... We're not going to get into that, actually. We don't have time to talk about reincarnation. So I guess the the next question, before we really get into the nitty-gritty of stuff, is why do we think that they're still so popular? Because, to be clear, it is one of the largest, most lucrative franchises in the entire world. It has been translated to every continent. I think I have the answer to that in three parts. The first is that, as you said, it is a family story. Every version, though the variety does vary, it is at its core about a family. And people like that. They like character relationships. Second, as we get into this new comic era with Marvel comic book movies in particular, and DC to an extent, we have seen an attempt to do these comic adaptations that are going more for realism. They're going more for, you know, stuff that mimics the real world. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. There's a lot of good stories that are meant to mimic the real world or lean into the real world and get rid of some of the campier aspects of the 80s and 70s and other ages. And I think Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is popular because unlike those properties, it has gone, no, we're not getting rid of the camp. We're not getting rid of the time travel. We're not getting rid of the aliens. We are sticking with it. And there's a reason that stuff is popular because it's fun. Uh, It has a lot of fun. And even when it's gritty, the grittier Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle versions, there is still an element of satire to it that is deeply engaging and can be really refreshing if you're tired of reading about, let's say, another allegory or something. Uh, if you really enjoy classic cape comics or you enjoy a parody of classic cape comics or if you just like a good time, I think that's always going to be there for you. And third and finally, what's not to love about turtles? Look at them. They're turtles. Turtles are great. They're so shaped. They're so shaped. They're so shaped. I think no matter the series, the design of the turtles, even though it changes like a whole lot, uh, just like they're so friend shaped in every (laughs) variation. Uh, Save for one. We'll talk about that particular live action movie later. So I, as like the person who didn't watch them, the interpretation I get from people who like is often that it kind of is the quintessential Saturday like for a lot of people it is the quintessential Saturday morning cartoon and it's one of those things but that because it's had all of these different variations that are unusual like just we've we've made references to like how they're not the same each time but in many ways I think for a lot of people, there's still a kind of sort of consistency that there's this idea of like, you know, you still get these broad outlines of the same things. You get the same, even like in the newer shows, you still get their upset. You still get a lot of the same broad characteristics. You still get pizza. You still get the fact that they're kind of these like skateboarding people who yell cowabunga. You still get these, you get these like broad outlines. And this means that like people can return back to them and it's a show that is very easy to pass it is a thing that's something that's really easy to pass on to the next generation people feel comfortable with the turtles people go oh yeah I remember that. I'll put these on for the kids I babysit. Like, this is, it's something that has this kind of familiarity that you get with, like, that you usually don't get with things that aren't, like, 
Disney. Um, but it's like, but people have this like inherent familiarity to it. And in some ways it's a different kind of nostalgia than Disney because again of this like Saturday morning cartoon feeling that it inherently has to it. The way uh, some of the people I hang out with in Turtles fandom these days have put it when we are talking about these different incarnations is that they very much echo each other. Uh, and these echoes, it doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. Is how a friend of mine has put it is that there are these recognizable strands of character where you can become familiar with one version and then watch another version and have a moment where you go ah yes that's the guy i know like the phrase came up as, as donnie's is donnie's after this one episode of 03 where he just makes a bomb as you do that's one does i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna sort of add on to that perspective and say that that I do think that that's true and there's a lot of elements to that because you can see that in other successful franchises like Batman and Superman, Spider-Man where the different variations have their fans but the core is the same across different mediums across different generations all this stuff uh but I'm going to also add to this I think alongside that there is also there is a, a lack of fear in change like they're they don't ever stop and say nope that was the perfect formula we're going to stick to only doing it that way from now on uh which you do see see a lot of times in other franchises uh for example once batman had a solid look that was the only look like very mild variations are allowed to the batman look or the superman look um once it was settled the ninja turtles are more adaptable than just about any franchise out there with uh maybe only being tied with uh their you could say cousin series because they have a lot in common both in uh fan overlap and uh uh weird coincidences of their history which is transformers transformers is also something that has a core identity but everything else uh it, there's no fear in changing i will say i think a key thing for both that overlap in ninja turtles and transformers is how much both of those are tr for our toy driven franchise like so with a toy driven franchise of course you need to keep changing the looks because you gotta keep selling new toys your adult fan base is never going to be as passionate as a group of kids on the playground yelling cowabunga at each other this is true absolutely true but yeah so there's our answer of i think why we are saying they're so popular uh, Brooke, do you want to give us some turtles history before we get before we get into the weeds? Yes. When we talk about the Ninja Turtles, what we really need to talk about are the two men behind the turtle shells, the creators of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles themselves, which are Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman. Peter Laird uh, was born in 1954 in North Adams, Massachusetts. He was always an artist. And he loved comics growing up. So he loved them so much that he actually became a cartoonist from a very young age. He started by earning $10 an hour in Dover, New Hampshire as a cartoonist for the local newspapers. While he was uh, making, uh, even for then, a very small amount of money for his cartooning, uh, he also became involved with uh, the blossoming fanzine communities, uh, which is uh joined us to talk about before uh the 1970s was a huge time for fanzines and zines in general and that is where peter laird actually spent most of his non-professional cartooning time uh 
honing in his style and uh, getting used to the comic book scene underground. Uh, specifically, he was a huge contributor to the largest fanzine of the time, which was called The Orc. Kevin Eastman, uh, his his eventual p- partner and, co- and co-creator, was born in 1962 in Portland, Maine. He was cartooning and drawing comics as a child and high schooler before he moved to Northampton, Massachusetts. He would eventually cross paths with and and grow a professional relationship with Peter Laird. It was during their time uh, just hanging out as friends and coming up with new cartooning ideas uh, that they started to joke around about a lot of the recent trends in comics. This was the late 70s, early 80s, which was the height of a lot of uh, very uh, pivotal runs in superhero comics, such as Frank Miller's Daredevil, Marv Wolfman and George Perez's New Teen Titans, and of course, Chris Claremont's uh, X-Men. And as they were talking about this, they were like, wow, it seems like all the superheroes these days are teenagers. And what is the deal with all this grimdark nonsense going on over at Daredevil? Like, why are they monologuing like that? Isn't it kind of silly? And it looks like they've watched a whole bunch of uh, newly imported Japanese movies and are just, like, inserting ninjas to everything these days. And they had a good laugh about it. And then they just kept talking about it. I think we've all had that kind of uh, afternoon recreational time with friends. I'm pretty sure that's how this podcast got started. <laughs> pretty sure it is. Uh, so they eventually ended up, uh, cart like, as a joke, they cartooned a concept about something as ridiculous as mutant turtles fighting as ninjas, leading to some fairly iconic sketches of the concept, which looked like realistic turtles standing on their back legs. These are actually really easy to access uh, if you Google them. Uh, first Ninja Turtle sketches, uh, you'll probably come across them. I honestly find the first design so charming. To just be something that two friends were jokingly sketching in their apartment. They, they kind of remind me of uh, Franklin the turtle, <laughs> to be honest. There is a lot of Franklin energy there. Jeez, I haven't thought of Franklin in a hot minute. See, uh, that's, that's the difference in our power level stuff. I'm always thinking of Franklin. Uh, <laughs> it started as a joke, but just like any good idea that two friends, two creative minds have together, neither... Peter nor Kevin were ever really able to let the idea go. It just kept coming back like, haha, wouldn't it be silly if somebody made a comic with those turtles we came up with? It's like, haha, yeah, wouldn't it be funny? You know, if that was a comic, and then it just kind of like kept snowballing until eventually their joke idea became a one-issue, uh, 40-page, fully illustrated comic, uh, about four mutant ninja turtles and the rap master seeking out revenge like a classic Japanese movie plot. And, of course, just to emphasize that this was a lampooning of things going on in the industry at the time, they had to add one extra word that we've already talked about before. Teenage. <laughs> mutant ninja turtles not gonna lie i thought you were gonna bring up the foot clan nope uh yeah so with a one thousand dollar loan from eastman's uncle quentin the two finished their 40 page one shot uh under the name mirage studios i remember seeing i don't remember which of them it was but they were explaining one of the creators was explaining an anecdote they called it mirage studios because they were just doing it in their basement so 
The studio itself didn't quite exist, but they were going to hide behind the edge of it so they could publish. It's also worth noting, uh, for anybody who's a Ninja Turtle fan out there, pour one out for Uncle Quentin. We would not be here today without him. Pour one out. So both, uh, uh, both of them were equally credited for scripts, pencils, and inking, uh, with individual credit for Laird for toning, and Eastman for lettering and the cover. Uh, which was a very iconic black and white and red cover. I'm going to turn my video on again so you guys can see. Can you see it at all? I know the lighting's horrible. It's not great lighting. Beautiful. Iconic. Uh, and and uh, right there is Peter Laird's signature. He drew me a little turtle on it, too. To clarify for the audience, that is not an original first run. No, not at all. Uh, this was for the 23rd anniversary special. And why am I saying that it is most definitely not a first edition, you might ask? Well, it's because they only published 3,275 copies. Exactly. Which was uh, how many they could afford to publish. And then they like would send them out various comic distributors that they knew of in May of 1984. I also want to back up just for a second to talk about one of the credits that we just read there, uh, Tony. Um, so the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles kind of set itself apart from uh, the superhero comic crowd by being a traditional black and white comic. This wasn't totally unusual in the 80s for uh, indie comics and zines because the cost of color printing is much you know, many, many times larger than uh, black and white printing. But it definitely set it apart from what DC and Marvel and Archie were putting out at the time. It could have been just black and white, but if you read black and white comics a lot, you probably know already that the black and white uh, comics are not usually just the black and white. There's usually gray tones and different effects meant to give volume and depth to the otherwise black and white ink lines. Uh, this process is called toning, and it's actually sort of becoming a lost art here in America, even though it is still very popular in international comics, especially uh, Japanese manga. I, I, I just wanted to bring this up because toning is such a difficult process and it's so hard especially when you're doing it by hand uh because you have to like cut out these tone sheets and fit them into uh or at least you used to have to like fit them to whatever area on the comic you wanted to have that specific tone and then like press it it's it's a whole deal and Kevin and Peter did that on their own literally on a kitchen counter <laughs> And uh, it, it's kind of wild. It's a, it's a wild amount of work for just two people to do. And yeah, this was like, and like those three, those 3,275 issues sold insanely well. And people like were call, calling Mirage Studios very, uh, very quickly to say, hey, uh, why didn't we get any copies of this? We want copies of this. And they're like, uh, because we printed 3,000 of them. We don't have enough. So they ended up doing three reprints. By September. And uh. with that 
all background i think we need to talk about that first issue i do actually have another piece of background on what that kind of turnaround time is like yes because i've read about underground comics in the 70s and 80s which were usually sold i cannot remember his name again the main distributor of underground comics arranged to print things on a as sold basis so like print a thousand copies send them out to all these underground places if they all sell out then i'll print another thousand copies and the usual scale was like selling a thousand copies or in a year was good. This was big. A lot of times uh, zines were printed on one piece of paper that you could fold because it saved printing costs. Because uh, you only had to uh, print on one side of the paper. So I totally buy that they only made 3,000 issues. That's a lot. Yeah, these are, this was, like, as we said before, this is a 40 page comic. Like, so this is not. Yeah, double so this sized. is a, what we yeah. This is a double sized issue. It is big. It is not, and they aren't even. They're working uh, like they're not working with a full studio. They're this is like a, this is an insane production, and the fact like and it, they, especially when you kind of, this is essentially a joke. This is a gag. <laughs> they're doing this to go ha ha. Look at our dumb three thousand. 3,000 co- printed comic uh, that we're gonna send to various, like, local comic shops. And then it becomes it becomes the cur- the 1984 equivalent of a viral sensation. Sometimes you do something for the bit and the bit's actually really fun. And then the bit becomes a thing. Let's talk a little bit about the issue itself because uh, as fun and interesting as the history is, and we're definitely gonna keep talking about, like, the behind-the-scenes stuff because... It's such a wild ride. This would not have gotten as popular as it was. It would not have spiraled out of control the way it did if the quality had not been there to begin with. And I was kind of talking to Steph earlier about uh, how the way I see it, you can enjoy Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on three different levels. The, The least sincere level would be oh, this is all a bunch of dumb, it's a goof, it's whatever. And you can just read it and be like, this shows how ridiculous ideas can get. And you're not necessarily wrong uh, for reading it that way. I would say, actually, there's a huge population of people that that's as deep as they go with it. But the other two levels are kind of the ones that at least I have always enjoyed Ninja Turtles on as a, a fan for all these years. And that would be, first, taking it for itself. And I think, especially this first issue, uh, kind of started the tradition of these are ridiculous concepts, but in-universe, everything is as serious as possible. Like, the characters fully commit. They are fully uh, believably involved, and uh, they are experiencing their world as if it was real because it is real to them. You know, and you, know you can enjoy the, it with them. You know what the term is that ta- is actually the perfect term for it? Crack treated seriously. Yes. This is like turtles live in crack treated seriously fandom terminology. That is their bread and butter. And then the third level I think uh, people can enjoy it on. And like I said, I kind of go wafer between this one and uh, the treating it for its own seriousness sake. And the third way is if you are a comic book fan 
if you're a superhero fan, if you're somebody who enjoys and has observations about the comic book industry and the scene itself, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is like one of the most intelligent parodies slash commentaries on comic American comic books in general that has ever existed. Every moment of it, every breath of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from the very first issue is saying something about the comic book industry of the time, about superheroes of the time, about indie comics of the time. Like, it's very smart in what influences it shows off. Steph and I just recently talked about Daredevil, and I reread uh, the first bit of Frank Miller's Daredevil. And reading, <laughs> reading the internal monologue of the Turtles in uh, the first issue back to back with Frank Miller's Daredevil, it's, it's identical. It's like, it's tone for tone. It's exactly like a Frank Miller monologue, but it's being delivered by a giant talking turtle. I and think as the comic ages and Frank Miller's everything came out, it becomes more and more funny. It really does. It ages so well. It's like you're making fun of Frank Miller and the, in the time this was released, pretty funny. Making fun of Frank Miller now, so much funnier, just conceptually. Here's a very important question, Brooke. Mm -hmm. Does Frank Miller have an official statement on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Honestly, I've never heard it. Um, I think, I, I don't think so. There's actually a lot of people in the industry of the time that did speak highly of the Turtles, just because it was such an indie success, like we'll talk about in a minute. <laughs> Another defense mechanism that the Turtles, especially the original 62 issues from the Mirage uh, Studio series, has is if you are in the industry, if you're a writer or an artist or an editor, if you're somebody that works in comics, it is very revealing for you to explain what you don't like about the Ninja Turtles because anything you could say against them can bounce right back to whatever you have produced for the industry. If you've ever worked on X-Men and you're like, Mutant Turtles is ridiculous. It's like, do you know what you've worked on? It's you a boomerang. It's a boomerang of a comic to insult. You're throwing the boomerang, it's going to come back for you. There, really, there's almost no angle of attack that somebody in industry can have against Ninja Turtles that will not smack them in the face. All right. Uh, shall we talk about issue one? Yes. Uh, who wants to give a short summary of the first issue since it is fairly straightforward? Actually, I would love to hear your... Yes, I want to hear this stuff. Okay. We open in combat with the four turtles being narrated by Leonardo fighting the purple dragons. Uh, there is detailed explanations about, like, their weapons and, like, the way they fight and, like, how they are better than everybody at fighting. They, like, talk about the fact that they have to hide from the police because the, even though they're on the same side, because the police would not understand them and would fear them. Which is not as A-cab as I would like, but, you know, I'll give them it's 1984. Uh, they I then mean, go would a New York City cop know what to do with a giant turtle? Like picture that interaction though they then go into the sewer where they go and find their ma find ma master splinter a giant rat the giant rat gives them his backstory of explaining his past life as a pet rat of a nin of a ninja 
who used to be part of a, a ninja organization called the Foot Clan. His master, called Master Yoshi, feuded with a fellow ninja over, the, over his lady love. He killed his enemy ninja over his lady love. And rather than commit ritualized suicide, he instead ran to the United States, bringing his pet rat with him and his girlfriend. Fifteen years later, the little brother of the ninja he killed came back to get his revenge. And his name is Shredder. Shredder killed Yoshi and his girlfriend, and uh, Splinter the Rat got out and ate garbage for a while. And then one day, he was hanging out on the streets in New York City, and someone was walking there, I guess, and a, tr a truck full of toxic chemicals nearly cra crashed. Not nearly, did crash. And it's like, a kid pulled a blind guy out of the way, and a thing of the toxic chemicals bounced off the kid's face and shattered on the ground and hit some baby turtles and, and Splinter. And they went into the sewers together, and he was just hanging out with these turtles who started to mutate and get really big. He's like, oh, that's weird. And then one day, the turtles started talking, and they knew his name. And I like, was he just talking to these turtles? Did he name himself to these turtles while having a monologue? Him learning to speak is not remarked upon that I remember. This did not seem to be a plot point. Just the turtles learning to speak was a plot point. Uh, first issue. Uh, yes, in the first issue. And said he not like, for the first treats, issue. Treat, teaches them ninjutsu, which he knows because he was the pet rat of a ninja. And that he has raised these children to be, to, who are ninjas and still teenagers, uh, to be the weapon of his revenge against the Shredder. Uh, they, then the POV switches over to Raphael. Raphael has a nice little monologue about how he appears to be slightly claustrophobic and his brothers aren't. Because he's like, my brothers like the sewers, but I like the open air of New York City. He then throws a sigh through a window, interrupting the Shredder's business meeting. Uh, and then the Shredder is like, what is this? I am going to go meet these people for an honor duel. Why is my past for 15 years ago coming to haunt me? I don't know. Anyways, I'm going to bring all my ninjas and go to fight people. And Splinter doesn't bother to show up. But he sends his kids to do his dirty work for them. There is a big ninja fight. Shredder is ambiguously killed. The end. Not ambiguously. He was dead. Like, he, he's gone. Yeah, you see, he I... He gets better. He I gets used, better. Okay, you see, I am a comic book fan. I don't believe it until I see the body. No, he, oh. he, was, he was gone dead. He okay. Was, he, he was dead. Okay. It's extremely funny because Shredder and the... Uh, Mirage Comics is like a training wheels villain, baby's first villain, and then he often is the first villain. Yeah, so many other franchises have just gone. Okay, he's the big bad. He's their fated enemy. We're gonna build up to this over the course of many seasons. It's fun. I do I love think evolution. I think what's interesting and is a little off topic is how some plot points get done in every series. 
but there's new twists on them. Or the plot points are done, not every, but there are some plot points and storylines that get touched on in most, at least in the TV adaptations. Like a common one is Leo fights a Shredder and gets his ass handed to him. And he has to go to a barn upstate and recover. Like that's in Great the plot live point. action. That's in the live action movie. That's in the, I think the original comics, is it? Yes. It's the original comics. It's in the live action movie. It's in the 2003 adaptation. And I think it's, it's in the 2012 in, one, too. It's in 2012, and it's also in IDW. Yes, in IDW. Another one, which is usually a little bit more variated, is Raphael gets sick of everyone's shit. He's like, time to go solo. Or not, like, actually solo, but he's doing, like, a rebellious teenager thing. And he met, runs into Casey, and they become friends. Uh, that's usually, in most adaptations, it varies on exactly how it plays out. The Raph having a bit of an independent streak and meeting Casey. Uh, hothead and hothead uh, friendship. I remember having in multiple versions. Um, April and Baxter Stockman and the Mousers. And it's interesting because every generation kind of does a couple tweaks to it. Uh, and then it's interesting when you see these bigger tweaks. Like, Splinter's relationship with the Turtles is always a mix of father and mentor. But how much mentor it is and how much father it is really depends on the adaptation. And sometimes that father is very explicit. Like in the IDW comics, uh, Splinter and the Turtles are reincarnated father and son. So, like, it's real explicit. And in some versions, it's more like, this is my sort of dad, but mostly he teaches his ninja girls. Which I find really fascinating. That also does not correlate at all with, is Splinter a good dad in this version? Splinter is like the... Uh, parenting varies widely. IDW Splinter is quite possibly the worst parent. I will stand by this. Yeah, I would. I, I would say that Mirage, like OG Splinter, is probably the worst parent because I don't think. Uh, I don't think the full consideration had been there yet about what it meant if a father was doing this to his sons. Literally, in the first issue, he is raising them explicitly to beat up Shredder for him. And he does not even bother to show up for his revenge fight. You know what? We're throwing out all the systems of rating turtle adaptations based on factors like, is it good, is it loyal, is it original? Now we're basing turtle adaptations, we're going to have a sliding scale called the splinter... That's a splinter. Yeah, the splinter. The splinter shittery scale. And a zero is like low levels of bullshit from splinter... And a 10 is like, Jesus Christ, someone called Turtle CPS. I still say that the best way to rate a series is how much does April O'Neil deserve a gun and do they give her one? Actually, yeah, that's a really good rating system. For context, Nina once made a presentation called Rating the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Series based on does April have a gun? And do- Wait, you say it again, Nina. Uh, how much does April O'Neil deserve a gun and how much does she get one? And it it was was I also good. I hadn't I wasn't familiar with the eighty seven cartoon at that point. I was like, I have not seen this, but I'm going to give them a low rating on the does she get a gun because it's the eighties and Michelangelo can't hit people with nunchucks because censorship. So I'm going to assume she doesn't get a gun. And then I found out she gets a gun multiple times. So eighty seven <laughs> gets to climb the rankings. Congrats to eighty seven. Oh yeah, but yeah. So I think this is like you know this is. I think interesting things of note is that uh, Leonardo and Raphael are the POV turtles right off the bat, uh, with Donatello and Michelangelo not really having much to do. They don't really establish differences in the turtles' personalities here. It's that, you know, there's additionally, the only difference we really see is that they have um, different, you know, is that they have their different weapons. 
So if you, in scenes where they don't have their weapons, you can't really tell them apart yet because they don't have their coloration. There's not really a lot of personality differentiation. We get the impression that Leo is the leader and there's kind of some implications that Raphael is a bit more of a hothead. He beats people up a little unnecessarily, but like all of them kind of enjoy violence. Uh, and yeah, uh, so yeah, that's really, we do not get much personality from Mikey or uh, Donnie at all in the first issue. And it was kind of interesting to me as, as um, but however, what I did notice, I was really surprised at how uh, faithfully uh, the 2003 animated show kind of took that splinter backstory. I'm like, oh, literally the only thing that are missing is the girlfriend and making it explicit that Yoshi was part of the Foot Clan. Like, I kind of had assumed that previously, but it, but it, but it wasn't textual that I remember in 2003. Uh, we can talk about this a little bit later, but the, uh, one of the claims to fame of the 2003 animated series is that Peter Laird, uh, was, uh, the main producer on it, and he held it very cl- creatively close to the chest because, uh, he and Kevin Eastman had uh, felt over the past decade that their babies had kind of been taken from them and kind of morphed in ways that they hadn't necessarily approved. Uh, so the 2003 series started with the thesis of being as close to the comics and the original intent of the comics as possible. It's pretty close. Uh, I mean, obviously it's more kid-friendly, but mm-hmm. it's as close as you can get to i do think the 2003 series even though it is kid friendly i do think it is the one that is also i'd say if people when people talk about adult turtles i do think 2003 is also like a very all ages production oh for sure you know here's the thing that they did change from the from the mirage version which i am surprised they made uh, they the the 2003 version added torture there was not torture in the in the Mirage version. Well, you've only read the first issue. That's fair. Not yet. Yeah, that's fair, I guess. But I'm just saying, it's like, you know, you read the first issue. Almost everything else is in, like, almost everything else from the Mirage version is in the, is like, pretty much could copy me, copy paste it into the 2003 cartoon. And it's like, oh, and then they went and added torture. And I'm like, oh, okay. Then. Uh, I will say that the later part of the Mirage series kind of becomes infamous for uh, getting so dark that it's hard to read. Uh, I have personally only read the the Rat King issue like once all the way through because the torture of Splinter in that issue is like so visceral. Like it actually makes me kind of sick to my stomach. <laughs> I can't read it. Oh wow, that's you. I know. So to kind of like uh, briefly finish our talk about like the Mirage comics, uh, event, uh, the the comics would continue uh, throughout the uh, throughout the eighties. Uh, they eventually kind of like uh, created uh, some, some supporting characters. Issue number two introduced April O'Neil uh, as. Um, and then they would eventually do spin-off turtle individual solo issues with Raphael number one introducing Casey Jones. It's a boy. boy. The boy. Uh, and then like, so, but then of course, obviously, if you are listening to this episode, the odds are extremely high that you 
did not at least initially encounter the turtles through the Mirage comics. It is more likely you encounter them in one of their myriad of adaptations. So let's talk adaptation. Uh, one of the highlights and one of the reasons that Ninja Turtles has been so successful over the years, it, it, it's not entirely an accident. Like, it, it's a perfect storm of everything going right, but it's also a lot of business acumen. Uh, for example, uh, one of the reasons the Ninja Turtle comic was able to go from a one-off parody issue into a uh, multi-years-long series ongoing with multiple different ongoings at the same time was because uh, Peter Laird used his newspaper knowledge to create a four-page press kit for him and Kevin Eastman, and they sent it out to 180 TV and radio stations, at the Associated Press, and the United Press International which made it an international story that was, like, in newspapers and on TV shows, which kind of built the interest and allowed them to launch uh, the second issue with enough success and enough issues sold that they were actually able to, from that day on, become comic artists full-time, which was, of course, their dream job ever since they were kids. So it, it was striking while the iron was hot, but also it was not allowing the series to last only as a comic. Very quickly, they were in talks for adaptation. And their initial delving into adaptation would become maybe one of the most iconic 80s series of all time? Question mark? <laughs> I definitely think it's hard to top. Ninja Turtles basically ruled the late 80s to the 90s uh, in a way that almost nothing else did. The, the cartoon series, which deviated quite a bit from the original comic. It took this self-serious, uh, bloody, adult comic and turned it into a Saturday morning cartoon for the whole family that also sold ooze pies. If you ever ate an ooze pie, you know, at your girl, because me too, friend. What me the too. heck? Have you never had an ooze pie? What's an ooze pie? What the fuck is an ooze pie? Oh my god. Neither of you remember when Brooke put this in a general chat. And everyone else went, what the hell? I am blanking. I have no memory of this. Can't believe. I, I, I feel like I bring this up once every couple of months, and most of you choose to... I feel like uh, this might be a self-defense thing. Yeah. Let me see. Let me Google I found pie. a res I found a recipe recently for how to make it, and I'm going to, I'm going to do it this summer. Uh, Is after it I've moved and I have my own kitchen, uh, it will happen. And I will, like, uh, live blog the whole process for the enjoyment of all. Oh, God, those look disgusting. Ooze pie. What the hell? I'm going to send this uh, to the group chat, just uh, presuming Brooklyn didn't beat me to it. No, I just sent the cover. Pulling it up. I'm going to make it. Why? Why would you do this to yourself? <laughs> do you oh, know that... God. Did you know on eBay, uh, people pay hundreds of dollars to get the unopened ones? That are still what, around. IVF? Yeah. That's how you get IVF. 
I don't think they eat them, Bex. Well, some YouTubers do. Well, yes, but those are YouTubers, and they do weird things for internet attention. Sometimes YouTubers also eat 100-year-old MREs. YouTubers do weird things. This is like, there are different species. Anyway, that's childhood. I don't I don't want to hear this slander going on. Speaking uh, of the 87 cartoon, there's a really another fun connection with Transformers. It's one of these delightful Transformers and Turtles both being essentially toy stories were often very much following the same market whims and trends uh so you will see over and over again them putting out if not similar content at the same time you can line up like the 80s both of the 80s cartoons or in the early the late uh 2000s you have transformers prime and the 2012 Ninja Turtles, which both have this very CGI style and are trying to do the same, let's tell a coherent narrative of this sprawling batshit canon. And the thing you get in the 80s cartoon is that the showrunner for the first six seasons of the the 87 cartoon was David Wise, who had previously worked on Transformers. And this is not for inclusion in the episode, but he is... Also speaking of adaptations, uh, they had a media-defining Saturday morning cartoon show, but they also had one of the most important... I'm not being hyperbolic here. I'm being serious. Like, when you're looking at gaming history, the 1989 Konami arcade game is considered one of the pivotal, like, most important video games in video game, modern video game platforming history. And the same for its sequels, Turtles in Time. They define the genre of arcade games and platformers, including when uh, they were ported over to uh, at-home consoles, which was not that common for arcade games. So Ninja Turtles, for many people, is just got a hook in every aspect of their childhood, from cartoons to comic books to video games to movies to ooze pies the fact that people actually ate these the fact that parents bought them for their children the 90s were a time they were a time sure were the 90s and a time live action movies the 90s live action movies are an interesting trilogy to follow i want to second something that uh is said earlier in the episode the 1991 first live action movie is the definition of iconic of uh it's so good it's so underrated it's one of those movies that if i watched it right now I would still be as sucked into it as I was as a kid. Like, it's... I watched it recently with friends, and we were like, this will be a goofy little movie to spend our Friday night watching, and then the chat just turned into us going, this is a good movie? This is a good movie. It's objectively good. It's objectively good. It's shocking. It's so surprising in how good it is. And you you almost want to get kind of mad. What immediately followed it was uh, Secrets of the Ooze, (laughs) which... Well, look, we don't talk about Secrets Secret of the Ooze. Is- some, people, some people still defend Secret of the Ooze. Nobody defends uh, Turtles in Time, the third one. I didn't even know there was a third one. It so, tells you about that. So the third one decided for some question mark reason. You uh, guys do have to explain Secrets of the Ooze to me because I don't know what you guys are talking about. Okay, so I don't remember it that well. I just remember I didn't like it as much as the first one. And I was a child, so the bar was low. Secrets of the Ooze. Basically what happened is Jim Henson died between the first movie and the second movie. Oh, the no. first movie 
The first movie had Jim Henson behind the prosthetics and puppetry that made the turtles look like living actual turtles. I mean, they still look like guys in suits, but in a way that's kind of like you accept that the Muppets exist, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it's so charming. It, it really is like an incredibly charming practical effect and it's also benefited by a lot like the 2003 the 2003 uh cartoon series it went back to the roots went back to basics by using the original mirage comics as its main inspiration instead of the cartoon series but it used good things from the cartoon series like uh the more defined characterizations for michelangelo and donatello the the color coordinated uh masks to help kids tell them apart better. It, it took good it, it took good measure from all things. But it was definitely taking itself seriously in the way that the comics did. Uh the the director of the movie said that his main influence was the comic book series, not the cartoon. Even though the people who hired him wanted the cartoon series. So even though it was super successful, Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman were super happy with the movie. Fans loved it. It actually got some decent reviews. I mean, the critic response was horrible. Uh, but nobody was expecting the critics to like a, a live-action Ninja Turtle movie. You know, all of that, well and good. But all of that success, all of that money that was made, because it made a lot of money. It was like number one in the box in, in the 90s, which is saying something, because that was back when people still went to the movie theater. They fired the director. <laughs> Oh, no. And all the script writers for the sequel. And all the notes was basically less fights and uh, more comedy. Oh, oh, oh no. boy. The turtles weren't allowed to use their weapons. It was all like, uh, it, it was all even like daytime lighting throughout the whole thing, which meant that you didn't have any of the mood lighting in the first one. But also there was like super intense lighting on these rubber suits, which are already worse than the first suits because they were less, you know, they were less Muppety. And I, I don't Muppets know. Muppets is always the solution. I, I can't remember if the Henson Company was still involved. I want to say that they weren't, which is why it also looked really bad. Uh, I think the Henson Company was actually busy with uh, dinosaurs at the time, which was a TV show they had, which I'm not going to go into that rant right now. Uh, because I could. It's a good show. Somebody go watch Dinosaurs if you haven't. But uh, it, it was just bad. Like, everything that could have been wrong was wrong. Uh, but it made a, a, a ton of money and also had a... <laughs> it also had a cameo from Vanilla Ice. Yes, it did. Who sang the iconic, and I will defend this one, the iconic ninja rap. Yes, which I danced to as a five-year-old in a Michelangelo mm-hmm. costume. Mm-hmm. I'm very familiar. Yes, yes. So, oh, oh boy, I we might need to play an audio. I might need to look up that audio later. Getting the audio as we speak. <laughs> it's very um, important. So, uh, t- there was a bit of a difference. There was a, there was a slight change between the two <laughs> movies. So, uh, fans of the previous movie were mad and upset. Critics still didn't like it, but it made a lot of money, and because it added more mutants, uh, they were able to sell more toys, and that's kind of all that the people in charge wanted to do. This is around the time when Kevin Eastman and Peter Lard were, they were both getting kind of tired. They wanted to move on to different projects. They had wrapped up the Mirage comic, and uh, they were kind of getting really annoyed and pissed off with what was happening to their babies. 
So they kind of tuned out for a bit and weren't as involved, which led to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, Turtles in Time, which stole the iconic name of the video game and nothing else, which stole the comic's iconic time travel device, uh, Renata's uh, and Lord Simultaneous's uh, time travel scepter, without explaining that or who they are or really explaining at all why the turtles were traveling in time with this scepter. And it had an A-plot where the turtles were in feudal Japan and dealing with some colonialism. Uh, so they were helping some uh, of the native Japanese warriors who inexplicably spoke perfect English fight off some colonial whatever. I can't remember the full plot. The B-plot was that the way that for some reason this uh, time scepter worked is you traded places with somebody else in that time. So they took the place of uh, four Japanese warriors who inexplicably did not know English like the other counterparts in feudal Japan and got to hang out with uh, Casey Jones, who was back even though he hadn't been in the second movie. And it was just bad in the turtle props were terrible. But there is one funny joke where uh, the the evil col colonizers try to uh, shoot a cannon at Mikey and it looks like it knocked his head off, which is horrifying. Uh, but then you remember he's a turtle and his head comes back out of his shell. <laughs> <laughs> which is the funniest part of all three movies combined. <laughs> and that's the only thing that Turtles in Time has worthwhile. And now we know about it, so there's no need to watch it. No, you do not need to watch it. I have watched it three times. Oh, God. I think this brings us next to the 1997 live-action series, which I know only for one reason and one reason only. It, it is the sort of sister female Ninja Turtle. Oh, yeah. Venus de Milo, otherwise known as Mei Chi, is a shinobi priestess. Which you might be confused because you're thinking, hey, I know enough to know that Shinobi isn't that Chinese. Yes, inexplicably, for no reason whatsoever, uh, Venus was raised by a Chinese... <sighs> the best description is a wizard. Uh, so she uses magic, question mark, for her battles. But she's most known for uh, the rule of femininity. Which, if you don't know that, it's from animation. Which is the idea that if when you anthropomorphize something, that if it's anthropomorphized but and it just looks like itself, like say a giant turtle, uh, it's because it's male. If it looks like a a a big boobied lady with sexy hair and lips and yes. tits, that is because it is female, and you need to know that it is female. Uh, hey, hang on, I'm getting the picture. Did you not know? And don't feel bad. Turtles don't have boobs because they are not mammals. Oh, uh, also, it's important to note that her her mask had a it was designed to look like she had a braid. Yeah, it made it look like she had braided hair. You can't you can't appall me. I played Mass Effect. I know how coward the men are. I really don't like that. There you are shouldn't. pictures that I'm looking at. I really don't like them. I already um, knew people are cowards. This is not news to me. I also note the yin yang symbol on her armband. There's just a lot. There's a lot going on there. And also, they like you know sometimes she was their sister, but they also kind of wanted to ship her with them. It was weird. Yeah, they wanted so they they wanted her to be the fifth turtle that was also in the jar with 
the other turtles before Splinter got them. Uh, but she got separated in the sewer and found by a Chinese wizard. Uh, however, because it was the 90s and comp het rules say that uh, she has to have romantic tension with all four turtles, uh, they had to emphasize that she was not related to them. And in order to make it clear, they continue to emphasize that, hey, we're not actually related. So a series that is founded on family, a series that revolves around four brothers, was for two, about a year and a half there, uh, as, de as determined by the people who uh, made Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, uh, were no longer brothers. And it was purely so that uh, they could ship them with a female turtle that was pushed onto the series. If, th if you hate that, do not look up the fandom content for Next Mutation, because by solidifying that they were not related, they opened oh, a different can no. of worms. God, it's like they, I feel like, God, I'm gonna make a supernatural joke in the year of our Lord 2023. But it's like the end of season four of Supernatural, where Sam kills Lilith and opens hell by accident. Like, that's the vibe. It's like you did something you thought was good, and you're like, oh, I opened the gates of hell, and it's all my fault. But that's do we really mutation. need to tell, do we need to say much more about live action turtles besides that? Well, I mean, we haven't talked about, we're going to probably get back to our- Do we, uh, we want to move in chronological friend. order, or do, do we want to just get the bad stuff out of the way? I think chronological, just so people understand that Ninja Turtles, being a fan of Ninja Turtles, is a ride. At all times. Oh, God. All right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, this live action series had 26 episodes. Honestly, that's kind of impressive, considering yeah. that they had to pay for the puppetry of not only the turtles, but most of their enemies, uh, which yeah. I'm just like, who chose, who who was the accountant who had to deal with that mess? Uh, anything else you want to mention from the 1997 series, Brooklyn? Nothing that's relevant. Okay, given that I already start at times. On to 2003. Uh, we've mentioned 2003 several times. Uh, for oh, renaissance, if you will. For our generation, uh, our generation of turtle fans, this was our series. This was... Uh, yeah, it was. It was a return to form. So at, during the Next Mutation era and the, uh, the third live-action movie and all that stuff... Like I said, Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman kind of like took a step back. They worked on other projects. They weren't involved with uh, the series and th they were both pretty upset with how the turtles had fallen, especially Peter Laird. He, he goes way more on uh, record at this time than uh, Kevin does. <laughs> and Peter Laird was like, I, I hate what's happened. This is all terrible. I am not going to, I am personally, I'm going to make sure that anything we do f this day forward meets a standard and I want us to be involved. So he begins shopping around a revival series, but with a twist. The revival series of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles would be a cartoon, it would be a Saturday morning cartoon, but it was specifically going to be modeled after the successful serious series of Batman the Animated Series and Gargoyles, where it was more serious, the material was handled uh, with more depth and adult themes, and specifically 
uh, Laird wanted it to follow the plot points that had been established in the, in the uh, 1984 comic book series with slight changes, making it more coherent since, you know, they had had a, a decade plus of reflection on those storylines uh, and giving it a more overarching plot uh, so that everything kind of tied in together more. And the resulting series uh, was really good and it was really popular. It, it gets overshadowed a lot these days by other cartoons and other franchises. It was phenomenal. It was a really good series. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to wax too nostalgically, uh, you know, compared to the rest of this episode where I definitely don't do that. Um, <laughs> it's one of those things that I'm kind of just grateful I got to grow up with it because it made an impact on me that is hard to truly define. But it also is just nice to look back on a series that meant so much to you and like caused so many feelings and thoughts in your lifetime. And you look back on it and you see that it's quality. You know, it's like a, a really good, really good children's media. It should be something that when you look back on it, you're, you're grateful uh, for the lessons that you were able to take away from it while you were enjoying yourself. And that's kind of what that series is for me. Sorry to blubber all over the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Not at there all. You yeah, uh, Nina and Iz, do you have things to add about the 2003 series? Souls, I think it's great. I think there's a reason it brought a lot back. I think it's interesting that I was able to go so dark. I've noticed in... And part of this is my nostalgia goggles, absolutely. But I do think they, the 2003 series got a lot darker than I thought it'd be able to be for a Sunday morning cartoon or Saturday morning cartoon. But I do think it did really well. And I sometimes miss in more recent adaptations. I, I, I really, actually, that's, that's not fair. The 2012 adaptation, which we'll get to later, I think that's where it suffered. Um, but... I think 2003 did a really good balance of handling some of the heavier parts of the mythos without making it inaccessible for kids. So now you could enjoy it at any age. Genuinely, I, it's a fun, it's a fun and interestingly written show. And I'm saying that as someone who has vague memories of seeing like an episode or two on four kids as a kid, but has really started to watch the past few months. One of my favorite things about it is that you will see something happen and you'll think, oh, there's this one thing where it's the uh, antagonists one they come in to chase down these intruding turtles and one is like don't shoot there's sensitive equipment in here and another of the antagonists of course shoots and you go what did she just say and then of course she says what did i just say <laughs> it's you don't it makes the jokes you think should go there man what a good series sincere like there's a lot uh of stuff the comics the video games the other series the movies like there's a lot of stuff that i like on here that it, I, I i like a lot actually but man when i think ninja turtles i definitely think the 2003 series yeah i think that like i think for you know just, like i do think that is one of the ones that kind of you know having like as in the the relative outsider here i think the vibe I get from people when I talk to them and they know Turtles, I get the feeling they are usually talking about 03. And again, part of that's just our age, because there's, oh, yeah. there's a Turtles for every generation at this point. Yeah, and I think it's important to mention we've got a pretty wide age range on this, uh, in this call right now. Yeah, I forget uh, how old I am. Well, I was more thinking how young Nina is. Thanks. 
<laughs> you're it's okay you're it's not you're Brooke, brooklyn's old this and you're a baby not helping this voice you're using it's not helping <laughs> <laughs> anyways uh on to so uh 2007 movie that was a spit that was a spinoff of the 2003 ca- cartoon right kind of it's complicated uh this was the first cgi outing for the ninja turtles and it's actually a gorgeous movie like, I, I go back and the style of it is, like, really good. And it's actually pretty dark, uh, kind of taking off the 2003 series. But it's really vague with its continuity. Like, for example, Karai is there. And the relationship she has with the turtles seems very similar to the TV series. To the point that I genuinely don't think if you haven't watched the 2003 series, you can know what the hell's going on with the foot or Karai. But at the same time... There are references, basically, that kind of make it to where this is supposed to be in the same continuity as the uh, live-action trilogy. Like, it's it doesn't really commit to any of those things, and it suffers for it a lot. Interesting. It We, we talked about how the 2003 series does a really good job of balancing, like, humor with the seriousness, with the action, with, the, uh, with everything else. Um, I think 2007 is a step too dark it, it doesn't have enough levity and it doesn't have enough embracing of the silly side of ninja turtles and i think that's why it kind of uh landed with a uh kind of landed with a thud uh to wider audience was this a theater release or was this it was uh, theater do- release oh wow Ooh. yeah there's a there's a part in it where raf and leo have maybe one of the most beautifully animated fights I have ever seen. And it's brutal. Like, they beat the shit out of each other. No, it, it, it doesn't hit the way it really should because it never establishes the relationship before then. And it's like, uh, I care about these characters because I know them. But uh, little little Johnny, who's having his first theater experience, has no idea what's going on. And he fell asleep about 28 minutes ago. After the 2003 series, uh, Viacom and Nickelodeon purchase distribution rights for the turtles and so the next series is kind of sometimes called uh Nickelo- the nickelodeon uh tw- series the nickelodeon ninja turtle series uh or just ninja turtle t- teenage mutant ninja turtles 2012 uh i know nothing about this one so i will hand it over to you lot i probably know the most about this one i think i think i probably see the most of this one out of everyone here um because I was actually kind of curious. Uh, I saw the revival, so I gave it a shot. Uh, I don't. I wanted to be clear that I watched this as an adult, which definitely affects my view. Uh, I'm, and I want to make that to be explicitly clear because I think as a show for kids, it probably was fantastic. And I don't have any beef against it because I am not the target audience. But I did miss how the 2003, which feels like it's made for everyone, I don't think 2012 really had that sort of going for it which I did miss. It got more serious uh, as it went along, but the first couple of seasons really lost me. Yeah, it had a couple more serious... It tried to age a little bit with its audience, but it very much was for a younger demographic, and that's fine, but it just wasn't for adults. Uh, And that was kind of a big thing. I have seen a few episodes. Uh, uh, I actually know a lot lot about the show secondhand because I am friends and in a Turtle server with someone who watched this... Uh, when they were younger and is still very enthusiastic about it but does talk about the difference between being a kid and like this is the fun show and now as an adult they watch it and go 
I will take a hammer and fix the show. One thing that's really interesting about 2012 that I do want to mention, because it was a change that I thought Nine was Nine foot splinter. That too. Splinter is surprisingly <laughs> beefy in the show, but that actually wasn't what I was getting at. Be- Look, Splinter's beefy in 2012. We don't have to get into that. I'm Okay, well, I'll allow it. The other thing it's that I think is interesting is one of the common support characters of the Foot Clan is Karai, who is Splinter's right-hand woman. Um, usually his... Shredder's. Shredder, sorry. Shredder's right-hand woman. Uh, she's usually a young adult, not a teenager. And around April's age, we get the vibe from, and she normally is an antagonist. And something they did that actually was a little interesting in 2012 is they made Karai... Splinter's backstory was that he was a human, not a rat, who was turned into a rat hybrid with the ooze. And he had a daughter who he lost. And the daughter is Karai. Was it executed well? No. Was it interesting as a concept? Yeah, it was pretty interesting as a concept. I think that was an interesting change because it's one of the few versions of the series where Splinter's origin has been so shifted. Uh, they combined Splinter's backstory with Yoshi and made him one character. So he was Hamatado Yoshi. Uh, Hamatado Yoshi, who is the who owns Splinter, is the same character as Splinter. They're the same person. Hamato Yoshi. Hamato Yoshi. Uh, my Reese Japanese Wobbles. is bad, and I apologize. No, it's the fine. The creator's Japanese is bad, too, because Hamato doesn't mean anything. The kanji they use translate as beach door. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> Do we, sorry, I just... While we are on the subject, I have to go off about names. Uh, Please Tang do. Shen is also... Tang Shen is the name that they give to the uh, love interest in Splinter's backstory, who is yes. involved with Hamato Yoshi. Like, in the 2012 series, she is Karai's mother, and the... 87 series she is she's not wait she's not in the 87 series in the 2003 series she was Mato's yoshi's partner i don't believe they were ever married and in the 2018 series she was a co-star actor i can't get into that because it's too complicated but her name comes up as a cameo in credits and it's just very funny hang shen is not a japanese name it is two chinese names smashed together not in a way that makes any sense, like the kanji. Uh, so the way they Everyone explained this in 2012. Life. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the way they explained this in 2012 was they went, okay, she's half Chinese, half Japanese. That doesn't fix it. Here is a life lesson for everyone here. If you're going to write about a culture that is not your own, do some research and ask someone of that culture if you fucked up the names, or this could be you. You know what this is reminding me of, Brooke? What? This is reminding me of Sa- of Sandra Wusan. Yeah. This is why you consult a native speaker. You can this is- just do it. Save yourself, save your future self. Also, it's anyway. the right thing to do, but if I can't convince you on that, save your future self. Anyway, we should all be very grateful that they went, we're going to go with a fun gimmick for the names, and they're all going to be named after Renaissance artists, because, oh boy, oh, the so things bad. that could have happened there. I, I forget, it's been a while, I need to reread the early arcs of uh, the IDW comic. Did they ever give the names of their, no, 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 I, the, the of, of the kids? Mm. I don't know. I don't believe so. I've okay. read I read them I read up to issue fourteen this January in two days. They did not. Okay. Well, that's a relief. But that's my twenty twelve review. Uh it's a, it's probably a lot of fun for kids. So if you have a young one in your life and you wanna give them some turtle you know, turtle media, I think twenty twelve is great for kids. 
If you're an older fan, it's probably going to be a little less accessible. I will say it's also a lot more accessible than 2003 is. Uh, 2003 is relatively... Both are on streaming on Paramount+, Plus, but you can like find DVDs and things of the 2012 series, which you cannot for 2000... Which you, you cannot for 2003 due to complicated multiple industries sharing rights reasons. But the entire series is on archive.org and you should go watch it. Yes, but it's low quality. It's not that... We're not going to plug over and knock it into this. Um, I want... I'm working on it, okay? On a meta level, uh, 2012 is really interesting because it gets several aspects of it feel like they're being pulled in different directions. Like, Mm -hmm. there were two different takes in the writer's room on how this should go, and neither of them was quite allowed to win. Like, is Karai their sister? Or is she Leo's love interest? Who's to say? Not the writers. <sighs> not not the writers. Or the writers would like to say both things and so manage to say them both badly. We've got to talk about Leo at some point. That's not what I'm getting into. But um, the other, right, the other two directions is the animation. It is CGI. Uh, and sometimes this does not work well. Like, they have a crossover episode where the boys are sent to the 87 cartoon universe and they're so well done in 2d it's so i like the design so much better than the cgi but sometimes they do these really fun things with the cgi like how in anime you'll see like exclamation points pop up over a character's head they do that with the cgi and they have all of these fun tweaks to the animation that are very much drawn from anime and 2d animation but rendered in CGI. Sometimes it really works. Sometimes it... Mm. Sometimes they kind of ragdoll when they're doing the Naruto run. Yeah. So that's 2012. Dang, I think it's time we have to talk about the other live action movie. If there is any righteousness in heaven, I will one day carry spears for Megan Fox as she hunts Michael Bay for sport. Yeah, I wanted to be clear my earlier comment. The reason I said the the Megan Fox ones are bad is not because Megan Fox is in it. Megan Fox is fine because of what they forced Megan Fox to do in it. Listen, the Transformers movies are not Megan Fox's fault. These movies are not Megan Fox's fault. And it is a fun we, we salute her that both franchises have bad movies by Michael Bay. It would be really sad for people who are a fan of both. Wait, has anyone ever seen the live-action Turtles movies? I didn't watch it because I, I respected myself. Um, Brooklyn, I'm sorry. Um, hey, do you guys want to hear something that is totally, totally respectful of the characters and totally, totally makes sense if you know anything about them. Oh no. What do they, what does he have them do? I know do they one, pick up her skirt? I know Raph says something really gross to April at some point. Well, that's, that's every other minute, but. <laughs> it's our boy Casey. So Casey's in the sequel, Out of the Shadows. Oh, f- this, I. Casey Jones. You know what? Is, does this sound in character for Casey Jones to you? Uh, Casey Jones is a corrections officer. Okay, so first off, they've, they've already lost me. <laughs> All cops are bastard Casey Jones, a corrections officer? Is he being held at gunpoint? No, he's just a corrections officer. Well, they've already failed the first step. And that's kind of... The, that's, Casey that's... Jones is famously... I'm going to take the law into my own hands because I don't trust any... Like, that. you have one job. <laughs> Casey Jones is, the cops don't do shit. I'm going to go beat up the gangs that burned down my dad's store and are still recruiting teenagers who I care about. That That is Casey Jones. It's like, hmm, I could 
I, I believe he's like, law enforcement? Yeah, that's me. Casey Jones, oh, words. Would not be a cop. Casey Jones should not be a cop. End of story. You failed, you say, failed the thesis. Can we say anything at least neutral about these movies instead of just drunk dunking on them? Megan Fox is in them and as a person, she seems nice. Um, okay, uh, I'll try a little bit. The CGI, while I don't like everything about the character designs, it's actually genuinely good animation like it, it like there are several moments uh across the two uh different movies where it actually does feel like they are active in the world i mean i still think that the 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 puppets look much better uh from the original live action movies but uh there are several times where it it, it does look really good for CGI animation. I do think some of the designs, like how they gave the turtles kind of their own individual accessories and stuff, that was actually not the worst. It, it actually uh, did look quite a bit um, in character for each of them. I liked Donnie having uh, having glasses and I like, boy, you can tell I'm a 2003 fan because I say Donnie. Um, <laughs> uh, I like uh, a lot of aspects of that and I think those uh, kind of inspired what Rise of the TMNT would do later with giving the turtles their individual flair. Speaking of 2018, I think Nina is our expert on 2018 on Rise. Yes, uh, Rise was my entry into the turtles. Well, Rise and Usagi Yojimbo, which I will say that one thing for 2012 is that they have, I think, the best crossover episodes with Usagi Yojimbo. Um, I just love what they do with him. He does the Akira slide on a horse. Which one had the? Which one had him wearing those sunglasses? Two thousand three. Two thousand three. Two thousand three did the best at integrating him as a long term character, but two thousand twelve had my favorite look at uh, Usagi's world. Although I will say, two thousand three also deserves the accolade of they animated a snake wearing clothes and didn't make it look silly. That is actually really impressive. So Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is the latest cartoon until the movie comes out, I suppose. It ran for, it was supposed to run for three seasons, and they mapped out the whole story arc, and they got to do the first season, and then halfway through the second season, Nickelodeon got sold, and the new executives were like, we are going to clean the house and start with a fresh slate. So the second season got chopped way in half. Uh, and they ended up taking the material they had wanted to use and turning some of it into the movie that was released in August of 2022 and has kind of uh, prompted a minor resurgence of the fandom. The movie is it's how I got been into all over it. Tumblr. The movie is how I got into it. And I would say that in terms of the wider fandom, Rise is currently the dominating group. Uh, any big franchise, you're going to end up with all these little camps of people who have the things they prefer, and right now, Rise is one of the biggest camps. Um, and it's a good-looking show. Well-written, it is well-plotted, it's beautifully animated. I don't know sh anything about animation, and I can still tell it's really well done. And they do a... They're interested in telling a unique version of the story, and they really go ham on that. They set it up so that all the turtles are not only very different designs, uh, long way from the days of 87 where they were all kind of copy-pastes of each other and often the animators will mi mix up the mask colors in certain frames. 
um, but they're different species. They're modeled on different species and they have very different physical body language. The voice acting is also extremely fun. Fun fact, one of the voice directors for Rise was uh, the voice of Donnie in the 2003 cartoon. Sam Regal! <laughs> I'm still not over the fact that that was Sam Regal. It does not sound like him. Kind of does, but upside down and backwards. Um, See, uh, that is how I know Sam Regal. So for me, it's like, yeah, of course. I have a question since we have reached the end of the adaptations, which is a question I asked during my zine episode, guest star. <laughs> Who is your turbo sona? Um, so I am more Leo than I want to admit to myself. I, That's I, okay. I know Bex says my Bex is a Mikey. Oh, really? or I is a Donnie. Is is a Mike? Well, you self-identified as Mikey as a child. So I was- I as a child, I was definitely Mikey. As an adult, I am Donnie with Mikey tendencies. You're a you're a you're you're a Mikey rising. Yes. Who's your moon? Who's your moon turtle though? Uh, definitely Leo. I don't believe in horoscopes, but I do believe in uh, telling my fortune via Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's valid. Uh, unlike horoscopes, uh, I rest my case. I don't know. Okay, no, Nina, you have to go now. Can I opt out of this and see Casey Jones? We'll allow it. I'll okay, allow it fine, because Nina will... because Nina rejects the gender binary. So why not this? Why not this? Oh, I guess that's fair. I guess why not I, this quatrony? If I have to pick one, I will say rap. Um, just because I do actually remember this. I had uh, I struggled with anger issues as a kid, and so rap is an extremely rewarding character for me. Very often, in that he is caring and is very good, and is also just sometimes furious. I I think what Raph does that a lot of angry characters do not do in most media is they make it very clear that his anger is a is it comes from the same place that all of his passion does. He he loves a lot. He gets angry a lot. He feel he just feels. He feels a lot of everything. He has a lot of feelings, and I respect that. I uh, I don't know enough turtles to assign myself one, so I will open myself up to the humiliation of being assigned a turtle. Hmm. Probably I Leo. I'm going. Yeah, I'm going to make a case for Leo because two extremely consistent character traits for Leonardo are has anxiety and is gay. <laughs> Tell me, look, tell me I'm wrong. 2003 is <laughs> No, you're very... completely correct. Uh, I think Steph is actually Michelangelo because Michelangelo has clunk. Has what there now? There is that. Clunk the cat. Oh, clunk the, the cat. cat. Wait, Mikey has a cat? Yeah. yeah. Mikey does have a cat. He has a cat in almost every version and its name is clunk. In 2012, he has a cat named Ice Cream Kitty that is literally made out of ice cream and lives in their freezer. Oh, I'm very sad about that, actually. He, he loves him. They don't eat him. Is it a live? Is it goes a, back? Is it a live cat? Yes, it's like an actual sentient or it, yeah, it's sentient, but it's like a, it's a friend. Oh my god! No, that sounds like 2012. That's the most 2012 turtles thing I've ever heard. Okay, uh, so in addition to the these adaptations, there's also been pretty consistently comics coming out. Uh, IDW has had a lot of comics for uh, for turtles, including some pretty famous storylines. It's actually still IDW ongoing. Comics, good. Yes, still ongoing. Um, it, they it's just still have... ongoing. It's been over a hundred issues. Uh, honestly, it's like one of the most quality comics consistently. Uh, Last Ronin is also. Isn't it up for an Eisner? I'm pretty sure it's up for an Eisner. I would have to double check the list. But yeah, so yeah, the 
IDW comics are pretty famous. There were some additional, like, spin-off comics. Uh, you have a note here, Brooke, to say, that says Dreamwave debacle. We so literally I- do not have time. It, that Honestly, if we ever do if we ever do a Transformers episode, uh, Transformers was also in that debacle, so we'll talk about it there. Oh. Yeah, I have heard whispers of all right uh so i think that is going to take uh do it for our do it for our conversation about the turtles uh thank you both so much for being here uh since you are the guests uh do either of you have a recommendation for our audience uh i suggest folks check out some uh comics that have been challenged are on the frequently banned book list for having queer characters. I'm going to recommend Gender Queer by uh, Maya Kobe, which is a autobiographical graphic novel about air, air experience growing up gender queer. It's really good. Nina, I am going to say that I've heard of the what is being recommended. I will look forward to the episode because I've heard very good things about that book. And then I'm going to go in a completely different direction and recommend the My Little Pony Transformers crossover. Uh solid from idw which since we've been talking about uh tangentially about transformers and toy comics this episode and this is also another very good example of the creators know exactly what they're doing and they love it it is a silly goofy concept of these giant alien war robots war these giant alien war robots fall into ponyland or Equestria, is that what it's called? Yes. I I don't know much about My Little Pony. I know more about Transformers than is good for me. And I loved these comics. Uh, It's a very short run. And there's like an initial run that's four or six issues. And then there is a second run. And there is supposedly going to be a third. Which I am (laughs) hoping there will. Speaking of franchises getting... Uh, great comics. One of the franchises I grew up with uh, alongside Ninja Turtles was uh, a little tiny show. Uh, You probably haven't heard of it called uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. So uh, my recommendation is for the recent revival comic started by uh, Boom Studios. It is a love letter to anybody who has ever loved anything to do with uh, Mighty Morphin uh, the franchise, the series, the characters, um, it's a really great revival series, uh, both, uh, for fans and also on its own merits. Uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, the art is fantastic. It's had a crossover with Ninja Turtles twice. Uh, both were good. And, uh, it's really good. I just, I, I like it. I like it very much. Uh, so for, for me, I'm kind of going more in the direction of the noirness of the, of, uh, by choosing one of my favorite street level heroes, uh, that being Kate Spencer's Manhunter. Uh, the series by Mark Andreo, uh, with art by Jesus Saez and Jimmy Palmiotti is an all time favorite series for me. I reread part of it recently, and it's just a fun little street level hero. Featuring, like, a kind of noir detective type thing. There's a lot of overlap between her and Daredevil, honestly. Uh, and it's, and given the, uh, the overlap between Daredevil and Ninja Turtles, it kind of felt appropriate to, uh, bring Kate Spencer and her delightful little world, uh, in, in for this one for people who haven't already encountered her. All right. And there you have it. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support our Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash yellowboxespodcast. Or you can leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Those really help us reach more people. You can also subscribe or tell a friend to spread the word. If you've got an episode suggestion, want to live in the sewers and eat pizza with your family, or just really like comics, you can tweet us at yellowboxespod or email us at yellowboxespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Kevin MacLeod for the music that serves as our intro and outro. Feeling good. Thanks for listening. that tweet that's like the, okay i'm thinking of two things i'm thinking of a tweet that says something like uh the problem with being a writer is that someone else already came up with the coolest concept and it is teenage mutant ninja turtles and you are never going to come up with something that cool uh and I'm iconic tweet. That. <laughs>